Chapter Twenty Two of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two: A Disagreeable Hour with a Disagreeable Man. This interview made an astonishing impression upon me. Never had I supposed myself capable of being stirred to such sympathy by being so degraded as this wonderful Mill Fleur. Was it the contrast between her genius and the conditions under which that genius had shown itself? Possibly. Or was it that a recognition of the latent sweetness underlying her wild nature had caused a feeling of rebellion against the degradation into which a creature of such amazing possibilities had fallen? Whatever it was, I was conscious of a haunting sense of regret such as had followed few experiences in my life and began to look upon the man who could make use of such a ruin of a womanhood for the obtaining of a deadly drug with something deeper and more active than mere distrust leighton gillespie was a man of the world he knew this wretched creature's weak points and what would procure him the poison he dared not buy from any druggist or chemist any one who saw this woman could read her story gay as she was buoyant as her spirit rose in certain moments of ecstatic passion she had corresponding moods of morbid depression possibly of actual suffering which only morphine could relieve he knew this and used his knowledge without let or scruple was he a monster of selfishness or only another instance of a good man gone to the bad for the love of a worthless woman the latter theory seemed to be more probable since all good instincts could not be lacking in a man who had been confessedly helpful in many ways towards rescuing the needy and aiding the unhappy undone by a woman was that the situation it is a common one god knows yet i found it hard to allot her the place suggested by this theory she did not look like one capable of inclining a man to murder yet might i not be playing the fool in cherishing so generous an estimate of her might i not be as yet too much under the spell of her peculiar grace to rightly judge the nature underlying it what did i know of him or of her that i should burden him with all the blame and in what did my own wild uncalculating passion for a woman who not only did not love me but of whose real character i knew little save as it shone for me through her captivating face differ from the feeling which might easily be awakened in a still more ardent breast by a creature of so much grace and fire certainly the words i had overheard leighton gillespie use in his colloquy with the salvation army captain showed the existence of feelings far beyond those usually associated with a commonplace passion so did the lines he left behind him for this waif but if it was love which moved him it was a love which did not shrink from involving its object in crime this she had herself recognized else why had she shown such terror at the mention of his name and made such a hazardous attempt to escape when threatened by the prospect of further association with him the progress which i had made in the case i had undertaken against this man may seem to have reached a point justifying me in communicating the result to hope but though i had succeeded in supplying one of the missing links heretofore mentioned as necessary to the end i nevertheless hesitated to approach her till the whole chain was complete her very desire to believe her youngest cousin innocent would make her slow in accepting conclusions too much in the line of her own wishes she might even now be moved by secret hopes in his direction 
might cherish convictions and calm herself with soothing anticipations of restored confidence in alfred but she would require the most positive evidence that the potion however and by whomever obtained had been actually and knowingly administered by leighton to the establishment of this last link in the chain i must therefore address myself an almost hopeless task from which i shrank from very natural misgivings two paths of inquiry and two only offered any promise of success one of these struck me as practicable the other not but the practicable one was not within my reach while the other was little more than a dream i allude to the first instance to the knowledge supposed to lie hidden within the breast of the old butler while the dream well the dream was this for some time i had suspected the existence of a secret and as yet unknown witness of this crime a witness for whose appearance on the scene i had daily looked and from whom i did not yet despair of gleaning valuable testimony what basis had i for this dream i will endeavour to explain in presenting to your notice a diagram of the parlour floor of the gillespie house i was careful to show the window to be found at the left of mr gillespie's desk but i drew no attention to this window nor did i think it worth my while to say that i found the shade of this window rolled up when i first followed claire into the room later i drew this shade down but not before noticing that a window stood open in the extension running back of the gillespie yard from the adjoining house on fifty-something street and that in the room thus disclosed a man was to be seen moving uneasily about now if this man had been in that room for any length of time the chances were that his glances had fallen more than once on the brilliantly lighted interior of mr gillespie's den lying as it did directly under his eye if so how much or how little had he seen of what went on there that is what i now propose to find out that this person who was a total stranger to me had given no signs of being in the possession of facts withheld from the police did not deter me from hoping that i should yet learn something from him many men among them myself have an invincible dislike to the publicity inseparable from the position of witness and if this unknown man imagined as he naturally might that the police were ignorant of the opportunity which had been given him of looking into mr gillespie's house at a moment so critical the chances were that he would keep silent in regard to it that his appearance at the window had been simultaneous with my sight of him and thus too late for him to have seen more than i did of what went on in mr gillespie's den was a possibility which would occur to any man also that he might have been there and in full sight of the window from the first yet had distractions of his own which kept him from making use of his opportunities nevertheless the probabilities were favourable to the hope i had conceived and deciding that in my present uncertainty any action was better than none i made up my mind to ascertain who this young man was and whether any means offered for my making his acquaintance sam underhill was the only man i knew capable of bringing this about i therefore went below in search of him and was fortunate enough to come upon him as he was returning to his room for some theatre tickets he had forgotten to put in his pocket i attacked him before he could back out what is the name of those people who live in the first house west from fifth avenue on fifty-something street i asked don't you remember the house i mean 
that very narrow brownstone front, with a vase of artificial flowers in one of the parlor windows. Blank me if I know, he protested in a high state of impatience, as he snatched up the tickets he was looking for. Then, seeing that I was in no condition to be fooled with, he admitted that the name was Rosenthal, and carelessly added, What do you want to know for? Oh, I see you are still on the scent, still harping on that Gillespie poisoning case. Well, the Rosenthals may live near the people just mentioned, but there's nothing in that for you or anyone else interested in this crime. Why? Because they move in a totally different set from the Gillespies. They have absolutely no connection with them. Is there a young man in the family? Yes. Well, I want to know him. Find a way of presenting me to him, will you? Sam's amazement was amusing. You want an introduction to Israel Rosenthal. I have said so. Well, everyone to his taste. I'll procure you one this evening at the theater. He's a great patron of the Lyceum. Are you going there? As soon as you release me. Very good. Expect to find me in the lobby after the first act. I'm obliged to you. This because I had moved out of his way. I have seen Sam when he was personally more agreeable to me. It would be impossible for me to say what play I saw that night. It was one of the well-known successes of the season, but it meant nothing to me. All my mind and attention were on the young man I had come there to see. He was in one of the boxes— this I found out before the first act was over, and though I caught flitting glimpses of his face, I did not see him closely enough to form any judgment of his temper or disposition. When the first act was over, I went into the lobby, but Sam did not join me there till it was nearly time for the curtain to rise again. Then he came alone. He'll be out at the end of the third act, he remarked. The wait is a long one, and he will be sure to improve it in the usual way. I nodded, and Sam went back. Strange to say he was interested in the play, if I was not. I had no intention of forcing an immediate disclosure from Mr. Rosenthal. Neither the time nor place was propitious for that. When, therefore, the anticipated moment arrived, and Sam sauntered out from one aisle, and Rosenthal from another, I merely pulled myself together to the point of making myself agreeable to the rather unpromising subject of my present interest. We were introduced offhand by Sam, who, if he did not like the job, and it was very evident he did not, at least went through his part in a way not to disturb the raw pride of my new acquaintance. Then we began to talk, and I thought I saw more than ordinary satisfaction in the manner with which young Rosenthal received my advances, a satisfaction which led me to mentally inquire whether his pleasure rose from gratification at Underhill's attention or from an erroneous idea he may have had of my being a stepping-stone to certain desirable acquaintances. Or, more important still, was he, for reasons I was not as yet ready to dwell upon, glad to know a man whom all recognized as an important witness in the great affair whose unsolved mystery was still the theme of half the town. I curbed my impatience and was eagerly pursuing the conversation towards a point which might settle this disturbing question, when presto, the curtain rose on the fourth act, and he flew to regain his box. But not before Sam, with a self-denial I shall not soon forget, had asked him round to our apartments after the play, which invitation young Rosenthal seemed glad to accept, for he nodded with great eagerness as he disappeared around the curtains of the doorway. 
"'So much to humor a friend,' growled Sam, as he too started for his seat. I smiled and went home. At about midnight Sam came in with my expected guest, and we had a rare bit and ale. In the midst of the good feeling thus established, Rosenthal broke forth in the very explanation I had been expecting from the first. I say, you were with old Gillespie when he died. The fact is well known, I returned, refraining from glancing at Sam, though much inclined to do so. Well, I've a mighty curiosity about that case. Seems somehow as if I had had a hand in it. There was champagne on the table. I pushed the bottle towards Sam, who proceeded to open it. While this was going on, I answered Mr. Rosenthal, with all the appearance of surprise he doubtless expected. How's that? Oh, I think I understand. You are a neighbor. All who live near them must feel somewhat as you do. It isn't that, he protested, draining his glass, which Sam immediately refilled. I have never told anyone. I don't know why I tell you fellows, but I was almost in that death. You see, the windows of my room looked directly down on that little den in which he died, and I chanced to be looking in its direction just as— Here he stopped to enjoy his second glass. As the rim slowly rose, obscuring his eyes, I caught an admiring hm from Sam, which filled without relieving this moment of suspense. As the glass rang down again on the table, Rosenthal finished his sentence. Just as Mr. Gillespie lifted his window to empty out a glass of something. Now, what was that something? I have asked myself a dozen times since his death. But this is evidence. This is a fact you ought to have communicated to the police, broke in Underhill with momentary fire. Perhaps it was a real one. Perhaps it was the means he used to draw Rosenthal out. And be dragged up before a thousand people, all whispering and joggling to see me? No, I have too much self-respect. I only speak of it now, he said with great dignity, because I'm so deuced curious to know whether it was poison he threw out, a dose of chloral or just plain wine. It might have been any of these three, but I have always thought it was the first, because he seems so afraid of being seen. Afraid of being seen drinking it, or of throwing it out? Throwing it out. Oh. Sam and I stopped, helping ourselves to wine, and left the bottle to him. Do you know what time this was? I asked. No, how should I? It was before ten, for at ten he was dead. It could not have been poison he threw out, or even the remains of it, I remarked for that would imply suicide, and the verdict was one of murder. Mr. Rosenthal was just far enough gone to accept this assertion. That's so. I wonder I never thought of that before. Then it must have been wine. Now, I wouldn't have thought so badly of Mr. Gillespie as that. I always considered him a sensible man, and no sensible man pours wine out of a window, he sapiently remarked, raising his glass. It was empty, and he set it down again. Then he took up the bottle. That was empty, too. Grumbling some unintelligible words, he glanced at the cabinet. We failed to understand him. There are but two excuses for a man who deliberately wastes wine, he proceeded in tipsy argument with himself. Either he has had enough, hard to think that of Mr. Gillespie at so early an hour in the evening, or else the liquor's bad. 
Now, only a fool would accuse a man like Mr. Gillespie of having bad liquor in his house, unless, unless something got into it. Oh, he suddenly exclaimed with the complacency of one who has unexpectedly made a remarkable discovery. There was something in it, something which gave it a bad taste. Prussic acid has a bad taste, hasn't it? And not liking the taste, he flung the wine away. No man would go on drinking wine with prussic acid in it, he mumbled on. Now, which of those fellows was it who poured him out that wine? We sat silent, both bound that he should supply his own answer. I ought to know. I've read about it enough. It was the slick one, the fellow who goes by me as if I were dirt. Oh, I know. It's Leighton. Leighton. And he stumbled to his feet with a sickening leer. I'm going down to the police station, he cried. I'm going to inform the authorities. Not tonight, I protested, rising, speaking somewhat forcibly in his ear. If you go there tonight, they will shut you up till morning, jail you. He laughed boisterously. That would be a joke. None of that for me. I'll see them dashed first. And he looked at us with a sickly smile the remembrance of which will make me hate him for ever. Suddenly he began to search for his hat. I think I'll go home, he observed with an air of extreme condescension. Leighton Gillespie, eh? Well, I'm glad the question is settled. Here's to his health, and yours, and yours. He was gone. We were both on our feet, ready to assist him in his departure, but he got away in good shape, and when the lower door slammed we congratulated each other with a look. Then Sam seized the bottle, and I the glass from which this fellow had drunk, and both fell crashing into the fireplace. Then Sam spoke. I fear Leighton Gillespie will sleep his last sound sleep tonight. You must consider the drivel we have just listened to as of some importance, then, I declared. "'Taken with what Yox told us, I certainly do,' was Sam's emphatic reply. The sigh which escaped me was involuntary. If this was Sam's opinion, I must prepare myself for an interview with Hope. Alas, it was likely to bring me sorrow in proportion to the joy it brought her. End of chapter 22